0: Lord, I thank you for this message uh, that's uh, right there in Scripture, that these these sweet words from Paul to the Corinthians, we pray that you will uh, bring them home to us, uh, help us to move more deeply in the love that's expressed here. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Gracious speech, uh, why it matters. Gracious, gracious speech, why it matters. If you are uh, just catching on, obviously we're wrapping up uh, 2 Corinthians, so where have we been? Um, the Corinthians have had some significant attitudes that needed to be challenged. Um, they have challenged the Apostle Paul's credentials, though he was the church planter. They have... Uh, wondered about his integrity because apparently he didn't show up when he had intended to be there, and they, uh, they used this as something to be against him. They had turned to new apostles. They'd found some new apostles, and Paul uh, explains that these are not real apostles. They are phonies. Uh, but the Corinthians have been probably the most challenging church for Paul. Now, all of the churches that Paul planted uh, needed, needed follow-up. All Christians need follow-up. So your epistles, your the, your the letters in your New Testament are follow-up letters, and usually covering doctrinal and gospel subjects that people need to know. And so the Corinthian epistle, you can start reading uh, sort of, not even between the lines, just like in the lines. Uh, whoa. They've got some real issues and some real problems. So it's a troubled church, and Paul has visited them uh, on two occasions, and now he's uh, preparing for a third visit. And uh, they have really been treating him like a stranger. Uh, and so in the context, it's really quite remarkable. Um, I probably would have written on an epistle that said, and there, take it, or there, I'm done with you. Or there, you figure it out. Or I don't know if I'm going to come. I'm not going to show up, right? I would probably have acted out on my hurt, right? Um. So Paul, uh, the apostle, knows what it's like to be bitter. Knows what it's like to resist authority. We are first introduced to him uh, to him as Saul of Tarsus. And he shows up in Acts chapter 7 uh, at the stoning of the deacon Stephen. Uh, He's holding the garments of those who kill Stephen. That's when we first meet Saul of Tarsus. And then he shows up again in Acts 9, and he's on his way traveling on his donkey or horse uh, to Damascus because he is completely against this idea of Christianity and is busy throwing Christians in jail and if they die in the process of his rounding them up, he doesn't really care. So he is, un, he, he does not, uh, he, he's not unfamiliar with pride. He's not unfamiliar with pride. And uh, as he uh, begins to interact with the Corinthians, he is humbled and understands that God has been gracious to him and he has been comforted. ...by the gospel continually. He has been comforted as he's been growing in the gospel. God has been faithful to him. So he didn't understand the gospel in 24 hours of his conversion. In fact, he didn't become an apostle as we know him for at least something like 14 years... ...until he begins to show up in Antioch, uh, which was a town north of Jerusalem... And he's hanging around uh, Barnabas, and that church in Antioch decides to send uh, uh, missionaries uh, to to non Jews, and that's when we first learn that it takes Saul of Tarsus, this one we call Paul, uh, quite a while to really grasp the gospel, to grab understand a Christ centered view of the Bible, and so uh, he understands what it means that people. Need time. He has a deep understanding of the rich resources that are in God's grace. Uh, now, he speaks graciously to people who have hurt him. He speaks graciously to people who have failed him. How are you doing in that area? <laughs> How's it going? It's really quite something, isn't it? Um, there was a, uh, There is a trip with our Christian school. We have a cool little Christian school. It wants to be somewhat bigger, but not too big. Um, we've got almost 400 kids in our school, I guess. And we have uh, these seniors, these 12th graders, who uh, are uh, given an opportunity to travel for two weeks to Europe. It's called our Grand Tour. And so I was a chaperone on this uh, trip back in 2013. Um, And we ended up finally in Paris. And Brittany was there to help us. Uh, And um, so we're in Paris, and um, we had two options on this particular day. Um, Option one, go see the Eiffel Tower, right? Go see the Eiffel Tower. And option two, for the more sophisticated, go see the Louvre. The art museum, the famous art museum. Brittany can pronounce it correctly. Is it Louvre, Louvre, Louvre? No, come on. So, I'll just say the Louvre. So, so I am the chaperone heading to the Louvre with uh, four four students. The rest of them were just yeah tourists. We were the artsy ones. We wanted to see the great art of the world. So I'm traveling with them, and uh, 35 bucks a ticket, by the way. Um, so we, we get into the Louvre, and uh, there's a, a bit of a challenge to our experience. Now, the challenge is one of our students had pulled a hamstring, it's some sort of muscles in her back of her leg just prior to the trip. And she was limping the whole trip, limping badly. And uh, she decided to go to the Louvre as well. So you have only so much time, and now it seems like we have less time because we're with this person. And I could feel like, whoa, this uh, is... I'm pretty sure. I think I was the only adult with the group, so I couldn't split up, and it would not have been a good idea to let some of the kids go on their own. And um, so we're going to stay together. But I did think, well, uh, I could stay with this student. We can walk around and see what we can let the other others move faster. And um, I handled it pretty well. I have to admit, this illustration makes me look pretty good. So that's a you know. Spoiler alert. So, uh, I would normally have been pretty anxious uh, because I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to see things. But I was pretty cool. I was pretty okay. Um, I could feel the anxiety of the other students, though, because they had spent their own money, and now they're going to see a lot less of this famous art museum because of, uh, of our wounded friend. I was thinking about at the mo- at the time. I was thinking about what was causing me to be a little more at peace. What was going on? Why had I? Why did I have again a kind of patient? And I was kind of good with this whole thing, not perfect, I guarantee you. So, in the truth is, I have been to the Louvre twice before. So that helped. And I had seen the great works. I had seen Mon- the Mona Lisa, uh, the Venus de Milo. I have seen the, the Egyptian artifacts and the Roman artifacts and the huge paintings that are just, wow, I guess that makes sense that Napoleon's painting would be 55 feet wide. Um, so I remember that moment when I understood what was going on with me that I was able to to be with the the slower student and to, right? What's going on? Well, I'd already seen the beauty. I'd already seen the beauty of the Louvre. So I want to just say up front, what helps you in your words with people? What helps you? What shapes your words? Have you seen the beauty of the grace of God? Have you a personal understanding of its depth and its wonder and its... Uh, all its greatness. Have you seen something of it? Have you you seen it? If you've seen it or you've experienced it or seen it spiritually, understand it for yourself, then you will now be able to speak in a different way to others. I think that's what's happening in the Apostle Paul. There is abundant grace for people who have failed him and he has words of grace for them. And I am convinced it comes because God God has brought the gospel to bear in his own life when his own obedience, his own consistency was made aware to him. For our words need to be overhauled. Our words need to be overhauled, refashioned for God's purposes. We must, if we're going to believe that, and I believe that the Bible teaches that our words have to be overhauled, if we are to pursue this, we must have an ever-present glimpse of the beauty of grace for ourselves. The reason why your words drift into bitterness, your words drift into retaliation, is you something has been lost of the beauty of the joy of your salvation. The words of God toward you are somehow diminished. And your words take on all and all-consuming importance to you. Paul tells the Corinthians at the beginning of this epistle, we work for your joy. Chapter 124. We work for your joy. Think about that in your relationships. My word, I am working. I am I am supposed to be working in this moment for your joy. Figuring out how I can help you tap in and anyone Of us, we are all in a sense ministers. You are speaking words of grace in order that someone else would tap into the joy of the gospel. Paul hoped for the Corinthians, his hope for the Corinthians was that they could begin to move in the power of this gospel because he had seen this in his own life. Paul's under new management and so are the Corinthians. Listen to verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Oh, that's not a suggestion, by the way. Finally, brothers, rejoice. And then look at these four key words. Restoration, comfort, agree, and peace. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I think the vast majority of you are pretty polite with your tongue. I think you are able to resist perhaps saying something at the office, Uh, perhaps... um, you you, you 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 are old enough to know when to say something, when not to say something. Maybe you're in charge of someone. Maybe you're, you know, someone who you are their officer and you've got to speak to something. You know, you, you've got to handle on your words. But I want to ask you this. Have your words taken on any kind of new shape in the last three or four years? I know you don't. Know, you know how to work in your Team at work or in your military context, you you know, you know the words to say, you've got it down. Maybe you know church words or language we talk in church, right? You are able, you're able, you're able to do it. I'm asking if you have tapped into changing the purpose of your words to consciously think about, wait a minute, I want to bring peace into the situation, I'm gonna speak words of peace or figure out how peace can be brought i'm going to here's some, i'm going to listen for some fear this is what larry crabb says counselor that how do you encourage someone you encourage someone by speaking to a fear in their life some perceived fear so i'm going to speak to something maybe you sense someone doesn't feel significant Maybe you sense someone doesn't feel like they belong. Maybe you sense that someone doesn't, they feel intimidated around the Bible. Maybe you sense some, and you sense it, you intuit this, and then you, you shape words to comfort them. See, now you are now, now there's a new pattern for your thought, for your words. These are exhortations to engage in community life. These are not words that just sort of play safe. These are not just sort of nice words and things to say that we've said for years and years. Our speech is now taking on a new way of, a new shape to it. You parents, you know that if there is disorder in your family, you know if there's fighting among siblings, you know that you've got to bring some words that make a difference in the situation, right? So is it true, same way for us. This is active peacemaking. And Paul has done what he can. Paul has written this letter. It's very personal. And now he commends them to the God who can do these things. He commends them to God's grace. And that's a stance of the heart all by itself. So can you fix people? Not really. You can try to control them. But you can't, can you? But you can commend them to God's grace. And you can communicate this vibe. God's working. God's in you. God's up to good things. I believe this. I'm here for you. I want to support you. I'll pray for you. God's at work. There's an observation in a book called Gospel-Centered Community. This observation goes like this. There is a column on one side It says, a consumer. And the other side says, a servant. The consumer says, what's in it for me? A servant says, how can I serve others? Consumer Who's going to relate to me and meet my needs? A servant. Who can I relate to and whose needs can I meet? The consumer says, the consumer is critical of, a, of the community's faults and weaknesses. A servant says, I'm looking for God's grace at work in the community. I'm looking for it. A consumer gravitates toward people who have something to offer. A servant recognizes the diversity of gifts in the body. A consumer uses others for personal gain. A servant empowers others for the good of the kingdom. This is proactive ownership of community life. And uh, it hinges, I think, on the idea of rejoice. Verse 11. Verse <laughs> 11. I remember Scotty Smith, who came and visited us last February, spending some time with him, and he was uh, spending some time with our administration in our school. Scotty is just this crazy gospel guy who just loves the gospel. And I remember just watching him for the first 10 minutes, and he didn't get into the very specifics of things, but he just was asking the larger trajectory of your life, the big picture of your life, is there joy going on? in other words, he wasn't trying to fix anything in people's lives, just like like the, the big picture of your life is joy, like the overarching thing going on here. And I thought oh, that's interesting. That that the whole framework of this gospel is joy. And one of the things that you need to do is monitor your joy. And without becoming overly introspective, not too much navel-gazing, but something's up with my joy, and your spouse might detect this there in the kitchen. Something's up with my joy, and and it's, it's not the behavior of that person. It's something's going on in me. I don't have a capacity to bear with other people. Well, uh, stay home that day, Uh, right? In other words, if you sense that you don't have a capacity to bear with other people, guess what they might sense? Guess what vibe you might be communicating? See, Paul's after a vibe for the Corinthians. And they have been at each other's throats. They've been divisive. They've been... uh, uh, they have not been a happy group. Finally, brothers rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Now, those are those are just short summaries of of the Christian life. Summaries that express that the self is being flooded with grace. The self is being overwhelmed with the goodness of grace such that others can be served. And you're going to be okay. Now, political commentator David Brooks has written a book written a book called Road to Character. And he writes this. It's worth listening to. A little bit long. Hang in there. Over the next few years, I collected data to suggest that we have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. From a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. It wasn't hard to find such data. For example, between 1948 and 1954, psychologists asked, asked more than ten thousand adolescents, whether they consider themselves to be very, whether they consider themselves to be a very important person, ten thousand adolescents. At that point, twelve percent said yes. The same question was revisited in nineteen eighty nine, and at this time, it wasn't twelve percent; it was eighty percent of the boys and seventy seven percent of the girls. Psychologists have a thing called the narcissism test. They read people's statements and ask if the statements apply to them. Statements such as, I like, the, I like to be the center of attention. I, li- I show off if I get the chance because I'm extraordinary. Somebody should write a biography about me. The median narcissism score has risen 30% in the last two decades. 93% of young people score higher than the middle score just 20 years ago the largest gains have been in the number of people who agree with the statements quote i am an extraordinary person and quote i like to look at my body now a culture I'm not sure if a culture can produce humility but I do know that Jesus does. And there's a transition from being infatuated with one's body to adoring the body of Jesus. There's this remarkable transition because what God is doing in the gospel is he is seeking to reestablish himself in the center of our experience. And as this happens... Our words now take redemptive shape. Our words now mean, And I really want you to think about this. I, I guess, make a living by words, don't I? So I'm used to this. I'm used to this. This is what I do. I'm sure I could improve. I want you to think about your words. Now, I know you're all going to be self, very self-conscious after church. Oh, well, what do I say? <laughs> So it's okay. Just be, it's all right. You can just, you know, talk about whatever you want to talk about. But I want you to think think about this. Think about, you're probably not a full-blown narcissist. But the gospel is working right at the place of that self-concern. Right at that place of the self-concern. In the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, we love preaching. Preaching is, in some books, this is the center, this is the big thing right now, this is the big moment. My words, hopefully coming from Scripture, expounding Scripture, are very important. But your words of grace and comfort and building up others, your words, your words toward peacemaking, this can't be done by only quote, quote, the professional. This can't be done by just a few people. Are you still trafficking the same subjects, the same criticisms, the same cynical attitude? Are you still moving in the same patterns of speech? Or could it be that this is the day when you begin to say, wait a minute, I want Jesus to take hold of my speech patterns. The one another's, there's, 20 or 30 of them in the Bible. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. These are short summaries. Think, imagine this if you had this somewhere on your, in your car, you're driving, driving to church, driving to work. These short summaries. We are really made for these kinds of things. We can get overwhelmed with too many to-dos, right? Right? The Westminster Confession, excuse me, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a beautiful short summary of what's the purpose of life, right? What, what, is, what has man been made for, right? What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That short little summary. I'm in church now. I'm among my people. I'm among God's people. I'm with my brothers. I'm with my sisters. My words now take on beyond just pleasantries, beyond just small talk, now I begin really to to care with my words, to bring care with my words. You can do this. You can do this by God's grace. We can move beyond the I want to win stance in our conversations. Matthew Chapter 12, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And that abundance, of course, is where the gospel now begins to flood the heart. And I love well, verse 12. What do we say with verse 12? Greet one another with a holy kiss. A word of affection. A word of greeting. And then, by the way, Corinthians... You're not alone. You're not the odd ones who are troubled. Um, Others have affection for you. In fact, at the end of verse 12, all the saints greet you. And then the the final grace words of, of a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that is a Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Trinity, this unfathomable grace, is enough for you. We think about words today. There had to have been a conversation within the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit anticipating the need for a Savior. The world would fall into ruin and evil. There had to be a conversation with words within within the Trinity, what theologians call the covenant of grace. And those words became embodied in the, in the person of Jesus. He commends these dear folks who are beloved of God, who struggle in many ways. He commends them with a Trinitarian blessing. God is fully committed to you and will not remove your status as beloved children. Someone once calculated that at the Louvre, back to Paris here, someone once calculated that if you had a hundred days to spare, you could probably squeeze in every piece of art at the Louvre. But you could only spend 30 seconds on each piece. And that's if you were there all day, every day, for 100 days. Now, those who pursue art as a living or as a calling, I'm sure all that art could captivate them. (laughs) I'm not sure. I think 30 seconds a piece, uh, I could do that for probably half a day. Most of us would move on to other things that would captivate us. Certainly, there's more things in Paris to see. But of Jesus and of this gospel, can we just take a few casual glances at this redemption? Christ seeks the abundance of your heart, and he brought you words of grace. the forgiveness of sins and before the throne of God those words continue right now Hebrews 7 tells us that he is our high priest and he is saying words of intercession on your behalf as you stumble and fumble in this world you have a high priest who says oh but father they are mine and for these I gave my blood These are words that are communicated before the throne of grace. He is our advocate. He is our lawyer. He is our high priest. Words are continuing to be the foundation of your salvation. Words. And the intention is that those words that you have heard now become words embodied in how you shape things, how you say things, how you consider others, how you watch and listen for fears in other people. You are commissioned to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand, as one book title says. And to observe the beauty of Christ will go on and on forever. And his worth knows no end. Let's pray. Lord what a what a statement how this book concludes that there is grace for the Corinthians and the spirit is in the Corinthians and they can they can grow they can change and Paul believes this and we Lord help us in the moments of our lives believe that you're you're in these moments and that these moments can be shaped Lord help us to be convinced that the words that we've heard of comfort and of, of joy and, and of security and of identity we can also communicate these to others Lord help us help us become servants of your purposes with hearts filled with an adoration of you we thank you in the name of Christ we pray Amen, Amen.